This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast that unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Hi, I'm Marianne Harrison. I'm the CEO of John Hancock. I um, started actually as an English major many years ago and got my CPA, and now I'm running John Hancock here in the U.S. I thought I was going to stay in public accounting and wanted to be a partner in a public accounting firm. So that was sort of my ambition and my goal, and everything was leading up to that until this, uh, this slight transition that changed direction quite substantially. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Marianne Harrison is the first female chief executive of John Hancock, one of the largest life insurers in the United States. She explains how she learned to run a business and how she asked for opportunities as a working mom. So Marianne, how did an English major end up with an accounting degree? A uh, very strange combination indeed. Well, I really enjoyed English, but I also knew that was not necessarily a career for me. So when I was in college, I did a lot of business courses at the same time. And it wasn't actually until I finished college that I sort of figured out what I wanted to do. And that's when I decided to go for my CPA. I had read that your dad had quite an impact on your career. How so? He really did. When I graduated out of college, I really didn't know what to do. And he um, he introduced me actually to somebody in a public accounting firm. And that's how I sort of made that initial connection. And he's just always been a, a great role model, you know, very committed to his job and work and always a, a very strong influence on my life. And as a result of that, I really feel I owe a lot of my career success to my dad. Several successful women on the show who have come on the podcast have said, have pointed to very strong father figures. And I'm wondering if there's something there in terms of a woman's success. It's interesting. People ask me all the time if I had a mentor, and yet I really didn't. You know, it was really my father who I seeked guidance from uh, frequently throughout my career. And I do think that for me, he definitely was that that sort of anchor point for me. I would always go back to him. And I the mentorship, I never really kind of connected. There's lots of people at work that I talked to, but it was really my dad that I actually seeked my advice through. So I had read you said when you were younger, you thought you needed to plan every step of your career, but then you realized that wasn't the case. So I'm wondering what made you realize that wasn't needed well, it was interesting. It was a, a life moment, actually, that did it for me. I um, was in public accounting and had been in public accounting for about 12 years. I was making a, an important move to Toronto, a different city. And uh, my husband and I were quite excited about it. We had bought a new house already to go, and my local client had actually asked me if I would be interested in a job. And I was very flattered, and I said, thank you very much. But, you know, I've got my sort of career path all set, and I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, went home that night and told my husband that I was offered this job, and he said, thank God. He said, I didn't want to move anyways. So it was quite an interesting weekend we spent trying to figure out between career and family, and obviously I chose uh, family. And it's interesting because I had sort of mapped out what I wanted my career to look like, and from that moment onwards, it completely changed. And I realized that it's difficult to try and plan, and it's probably not the best idea to try and plan everything. And so I've been very open-minded since then, and my career's just taken lots of different turns as a result. What had you originally thought you were going to end up doing? I thought I was going to stay in public accounting and wanted to be a partner in a public accounting firm. So that was sort of my ambition and my goal, and everything was leading up to that until this uh, 
this slight transition that changed direction quite substantially. I had read also that you had learned the importance of telling people what you wanted at work. Yeah. Tell us how you learned that. Yeah, so th- that was uh, that was interesting. As a woman with four children, um, I was always worried that people were going to make decisions for me. And it was interesting. I had an opportunity um, where there was a job that was in Toronto, and I was living in London, Ontario at the time, which is two hours west. And it was a it was a great opportunity, and I couldn't understand why no one was asking me if I was interested in it. And I remember sitting down with the senior manager, having a conversation, saying, "Would I, would they be interested at all in me for that position?" And his response was, "Oh, of course." He said, "As a matter of fact, you were the number one choice, but you have, you know." At the time, I had three kids. You have three children, and your husband has his own business in London. We just assumed that you would never move. And I said, well, geez, don't ever make those assumptions for me. And so ever since then, I've made a point of letting people know what I wanted to do. And I think that's really helped me from a career perspective. You know, I always said I was mobile. Even Again, having four kids, you would not expect me to say that. But I was saying I'm happy to move anywhere. And I moved from Canada down to the United States when my kids were, two of them were in high school and two of them were in elementary school. Not exactly the easiest time to move. My eldest son was going into his senior year of high school, but we all moved down to the U.S. And had I not been vocal about what I wanted to do and that I let people know that I really wanted to move my career and that I was happy to do that wherever they felt it was necessary was really important. Did you say that directly, don't assume things about me? I said to them, not probably as directly as that, but I did say, you know, I'm happy to look at different locations wherever you want. Wherever you think that my skill set is best used for the organization, my goal is to contribute as much as I can to the company, so wherever that is. Coming up, Marianne Harrison explains how she landed a big pay raise, how she's increasing diversity at her company, and how she instills a work ethic in her children. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. So you're the first female CEO and your company is, you know, about 157-year-old history. And you said you were surprised about the reaction people had to you being the first female. What do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. Um, When I got the role, I actually didn't realize. I hadn't recognized that I was the first female. And we hadn't even talked about it at all internally within the company. And then when I got into the role and uh, the local media sort of got a hold of it, that was the headline. Uh, John Hancock, first female CEO in 157-year history. And I guess I was quite surprised by that, um, the reaction. And it made me think that maybe we as women haven't come as far along as we might have thought because it was such a big deal around that. Um, so that that was really the surprise I had when I when I first got down here. Was that added pressure? Um, I don't know that I would say it was added pressure. Um, I think it just made me get even that more focused on diversity 
and making sure that we were focused on it as an organization because obviously that wasn't something that people had thought about much when it came to our company. And I wanted to make sure that we had a diverse organization and that females were being treated equally and making sure that, and not just females, by the way, all ethnic backgrounds, religion, all of that, um, to make sure that we had a diverse and inclusive workforce. So a key part of your tenure is trying to make your company more diverse. And, you know, so several other companies are doing this as well. And I'm hearing, you know, the C-suite may want to do this and the entry level folks who are a little bit younger may be very keen on this because this is something they, they focus, focus on and grew up with. But sometimes the diversity uh, efforts go get lost on that middle level of management. And so I'm just wondering how you can get the middle management to have the buy-in for something yeah. like this. So one of the things we're doing is training. So we're training people on conscious bias and making sure that they're aware of what their own biases might be. And it is a, a real good self-awareness program that is helping people to understand diversity a lot more. The other thing that we're doing on, on our hiring side is we're making sure that we have diverse candidates. So we're insisting upon diverse candidates at the officer level so that we can make sure that people are, are looking at a, a more fulsome list of people versus the traditional uh, individuals that you always get. So anybody that we're dealing with externally, we're always trying to get a diverse set of candidates. We're also looking at our job descriptions that we use and make sure that we're not using language that might stereotype more to a male. Um, like words like aggressive. Hmm. So using words like that that um, might turn off more of the women as well. So making sure that we're we're linking it back to the job descriptions that we actually have. What do you say to women who want to advance but they don't feel ready? I think women, we can be our own worst nightmare at times. You know, when there's a job out there and you're looking at sort of all the skills required for the job, we look at every single one of them and say, can I tick yes, yes, yes to everything? And yet, interestingly enough, you move to another job to learn new things. So you don't necessarily have to be able to tick the box in every spot. I'm, I'm pretty confident that our male counterparts don't always feel <laughs> that they have to have absolutely everything that's listed there. And so I always say to women that don't be be afraid to take some risks. And yes, you're not going to have absolutely everything required for that job. You wouldn't take the job if you did. Otherwise, you're never going to learn and grow. And that's really what it's about is making sure that you're constantly learning and growing. How do you get those strategy skills that you need? A lot of it's just from experience. So I, as I mentioned to you, I was in public accounting and I came actually into financial services in the finance role. And in my first organization, you know, I eventually said at one point in time that I would like to get out of finance. And I almost, I think, scared them because they say, well, you're really strong in finance. We don't know if you have all those business skills to be able to do that. And I tell people that when I first interviewed at Manulife, which is the parent company of John Hancock in Canada, the CEO's very first question to me was, would you ever consider uh, getting out of finance and running a business? And uh, that was so refreshing to hear that because that's actually what I had wanted to try and do. And so I was really uh, taken by that. And that was one of the reasons why I accepted the role. And then I spent uh, about five more years in, in finance. And then I got my first chance at running the long-term care business here in the U.S. And that was 
really for me what it was all about because that was how I learned. I learned on the job. And it was interesting. I came down in the spring of 2008. And at the time, the business was probably about 15 years old. And in long-term care, that's actually a very young business. And so we hadn't necessarily had a lot of experience. And then, of course, at the end of 2008, the market crashed and everything kind of fell apart. And that was probably the best learnings that I had to have to really kind of shift directions and get this business back on track. And so really, all of what I have have gained and how I got here was through those on-the-job learning experiences. How did you cope with the enormous stress that goes with something like a financial crisis and all the things that come out of that? Yeah, I think you just got to get very focused. You have to know what it is that you have to get accomplished. You got to have a plan. You have to execute towards your plan. And, um, And that's exactly what we did. You know, we were in a business where we had to all of a sudden increase premiums quite substantially. We'd never done that before in the 15 years that we'd been there. Had to go around to all the different states talking to the insurance commissioners, trying to convince them to give us those rate increases, something I'd never been trained for. And so it really is just making sure you've got a plan and executing as as well as you possibly can. And that's exactly what we did. How do you cope with the personal stress, though, right? I mean, probably as a CEO, you're often working 24-7 anyway. Yeah, you kind of never let go. But I think you just have to kind of make sure that you have time when you can put the work behind you. And whether it's going out for dinner, going for a nice long walk, whatever it is, you kind of have to have an area of time where it can be just time for yourself. So no matter how busy you are, you still got to step back and just take a deep breath and relax a little bit. It's hard to do at times, but uh, that's the best way to cope. You got a 30% pay raise in your first year on the job. So I'm wondering what advice would you give to women who are looking to get a significant raise? Again, it's, you know, I I feel blessed by my job opportunities that I've had and everything that I've been able to do, but I have not done it without hard work. And so, you know, I've worked really hard for everything that I've gotten. And, you know, when you talk about being a woman, I would be very disappointed if anyone ever told me that I was a metric, you know, in terms of hitting a certain threshold of women in executive C-suite positions. You know, even when I got that job down here, my boss very clearly said to me and to everyone in the organization, you know, that she got this on her merits, that she did not get this because she was uh, a female. And and I've always appreciated that he did that as, as a result. How do you make sure, though, people know about your hard work and contributions? I think they see it. You know, my work ethic is... is, is pretty significant. They see that on a day-to-day basis. They see me work. You know, I'm a great multitasker and being able to do multiple things at once. And they just, they see how I operate and and how I work. And, you know, the team is really important to me as well, that I have, you know, I'm a member of my team as far as I'm concerned versus always the leader. I have no problems making the decisions, but, you know, I feel it's really important that we operate as a team and break down the silos and everyone's working together. So I think my management team has enjoyed that as well as, as far as the work goes. So you've got four kids, as you mentioned. How do you make sure they have a work ethic? Because they can just Google you and find out how much you make. And yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, it's funny you should say that. Somebody said to my son the other day when he was saying he doesn't have a vehicle, and he goes, what? You don't have a vehicle? Do you know how much money your mom makes? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but my kids have always been really good about that, that, you know, that they know I work extremely hard for for my money. And they don't have any expectations uh, about that. And I think it's it's been really important to me to make comments all the time to them. Uh, you know, make sure you can afford that. And I'm even saying things like, oh, no, I can't afford that. And they look at me, are you crazy, Mom? And I go, <laughs> being an accountant, you know, I tend to be a bit more frugal than, than most. And it's rubbed off on the kids. So I think that they're, they're learning that 
as they've been growing up. Time now for your secrets. So I'm Marianne Harrison, CEO of John Hancock. My money secret is to be debt-free. I think that's pretty important that you focus on your debt at a very early age. My father, again, who provided no end of wisdom to me, used to always say that if you can't afford to pay cash for that car, you shouldn't be buying that car. So it's been really about trying to stay debt-free. Be sure to check out more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.